greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Okay, we're here at part three of our discipleship series on the fundamentals of the faith. Pastor Conway uh, is up next, and he's going to have uh, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And this is a very crucial doctrine to the church. It is one of the fundamentals. It was all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with God shedding uh, an innocent animal foreshadowing the work of Jesus Christ outlined in the priesthood in Leviticus and all the way up until uh, we see Barabbas uh, being substituted uh, by Jesus Christ taking his place at the cross so this is a very important doctrine uh, for without the remission or the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we hope that you'll enjoy this series. Pastor Conway. We'll turn your Bibles to me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We've already looked at the first two parts of the series on the fundamentals. We looked at the inspiration of the Bible and the deity of Christ and now the substitutionary death of Christ. Here in this passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we have, um, starting in verse 13 to 16, we see Peter dealing with the issue of suffering. Look at verse 13. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? This verse says the same thing that the psalmist um, said in the verses before that, that was quoted in verse 10. It says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so the idea is that God will punish those who do evil. And if he's going to do that, then who will harm those who do good? Certainly God won't. And under normal circumstances, you won't find another person doing that either. Look at verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And so he's saying, even if we're Christians and we do what is right, people are perverse and people are carnal and, and we, we're going to experience suffering um, for doing good sometimes. And in those cases, what we need to do is then focus our attention on, on what the blessings are that are going to come for enduring the persecutions that we're going to get when we do good. And then we see Peter quotes here in verse 14, the Lord's exhortation to Isaiah. He says in the second part of verse 14, he says, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. The prophet learned that the people of Judah and Jerusalem weren't going to receive his message necessarily well. They're not going to take it positively. But God promised to take care of um, Isaiah, and he did. And even though Isaiah would eventually die a martyr's death, God sustained him. And this is what God will do to the Christian who, who follows him. And, 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 and he'll give us the courage that we need when we, we serve him faithfully, when we endure persecution at times. 
And so he says, continue in spite of persecution. Look at verse 15. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. So rather than being fearful, we should commit ourselves to God. Rather than being fearful of the persecution that could come, we commit ourselves to God. When we commit ourselves to him, we will continue to live for him. And we should always, as the verse says, have, uh, it should be on the tip of our tongues to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Whenever that opportunity arises, whenever somebody comes up to us and says, why do you have that hope in you? Somebody's watching us always. And they come up to us and they ask, we, we should be able to give an answer. Look at verse 16. He says, keep a good conscience so that in, do, in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And so a good conscience is only possible when we, we know our suffering is in spite of our, 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 our good behavior. It's not necessarily because of our bad behavior. It could be because of good. And so also when we don't retaliate, as, as we would see here, when somebody slanders us, when we don't retaliate, it puts those people who are the persecutors to shame. So Peter here is preparing these people for suffering that they might um, face for Christ. That we as Christians will endure suffering for Christ. It's inevitable as Christians that we'll suffer. We're going to suffer the same things that Christ did. He suffered. He said, as disciples, you're going to suffer the same things that I did. And so having dealt with the, the suffering that we'll face for Christ... Peter now in verses 17 to 22 deals with the suffering of Christ. And he deals with the suffering of Christ in four realms. In, in the first realm in verses 17 to 18, Peter speaks of Christ's victorious atonement for our sins. In verse 19, he deals with the victorious announcement that Christ made over the enemy. And in verses 20 to 21, he deals with Christ's victorious achievement in terms of rescuing people from their sins. And then verse 22 deals with his victory by being in heaven at the right hand of God. And so today we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. And I want us to look at his victorious atonement for our sins. This victorious atonement was his substitutionary atonement. And he was victorious in it. So look at verse 17. He says, For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for what is right than for, than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And let's pray. Father, we thank you that despite the sufferings that we may undergo at times, we're suffering, Lord, because... Many times we're doing what is right. We're doing what you've called us to do. We're being obedient. And Lord, we know that it happened to you. And so Lord, it'll happen to us as well. So help us to have a persevering heart and know that you suffered and you underwent the most agony more than any other uh, person alive. And you did that for us. So help us, Lord, to have perseverance as we go through the difficulties we go through. But, Lord, to also appreciate your atoning sacrifice. So we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
when we think about the needs of the world, the greatest need that um, the world has involves salvation. My needs, your needs, everybody's needs has to do with good old-fashioned salvation. It has to do with understanding the Word of God, what the Word of God says, which, as the Scripture says, makes us wise unto salvation. All our needs is for the Word of God that will lead to salvation, and we should never be ashamed to talk about the cross. We should never be ashamed to talk about the blood of Christ or to sing about it, because that is how people are saved. And I know that there are people here that have not met Christ yet. Maybe you know him on an intellectual level. You know about him, but you're uncertain that at this moment, if you were to die, that you would go to heaven. Or maybe you think you know, but maybe it's a false assurance. But God wants us to have a a right assurance and to be, be solid in our assurance in terms of our salvation. But I'm also speaking to people today who have the true salvation. But maybe you've become a little bit apathetic about the gospel. It doesn't mean as much. So hopefully today your heart will be stirred as you remember the cross and as we think about it and the reason why Christ died, because it was for us that he died. He died for us. Peter had already talked about this issue of salvation back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look back there for me for a second. 1 Peter chapter 1. He had started to introduce us already. And then look at at, at, um, uh, verse uh, 10 there. The Bible had told us that the the prophets prophesied about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come. Let's look at those verses, starting in verse 10. And it's for the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And so they they had, had prophesied the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. And so salvation here is a a major concept that that Peter um, is talking about. And he wants us to remember that this this includes, what he's talking about includes Christ's suffering and it also includes his glory that will come. But as we read in these verses, these prophets who wrote, they didn't understand how his suffering and how his glory would fit together. They didn't fully understand understand the whole thing. And so in verse 11, they said, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This shows that they saw the suffering of Christ. They, they saw that. They saw that he was going to die and, and they saw the brutal agony that he was going to undergo uh, to make a, a payment for our sins. They saw that, Those, but they, they also saw the glories to follow. They saw his resurrection They also saw his ascension, his glorious return. But you ask, how could they have done that? And we looked at this verse, you know, last week or the week before. And remember, they were writing hundreds of years before Christ even came. But it was through, we know, the Holy Spirit that they were able to understand this stuff. In verse 10, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come made careful searches and inquiries. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. These people, they, they, this is how inspired they were. They just kept writing. And the Holy Spirit was giving them the words to say. And then they looked back and they said, what was that that we just wrote about? And then they went back and they asked themselves the question, what does this mean? Who is this talking about? 
And we see that they, they, it was revealed to them. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. They realized that they weren't writing for themselves, but they were writing for us. Now, while they didn't understand a lot of this, a lot of the times they, they, they at least they knew some of it. They did understand that God was going to um, be glorified. He was going to suffer for us. And, and they also realized that he would not fulfill all of the inspired revelations in their own day, but in the future. And so they knew that. God hadn't fulfilled them there, but they had, a lot of them had full, been fulfilled in Peter's days, especially the suffering peace that they had just seen. That was fulfilled by Peter's time. But he hadn't yet fulfilled the glorification peace yet. Even the angels are longing to see how that comes about. We see in the end of verse 12. And so the same Holy Spirit that illuminated these people to be able to understand that is the same Holy Spirit that um, illuminates the Word of God in our minds as we hear it. The same Holy Spirit as I'm preaching and as you listen to people preach is the same Holy Spirit that helps you understand the Word of God as it's being preached. And so Peter's point in these verses seems to be that we should rejoice in our sufferings even though we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. There's going to be sufferings, but there's going to be some kind of glorification at some point later on. And these prophets saw the suffering. They didn't see how it came through, but they, Peter's trying to say rejoice in the suffering. The question is, do you have a hard time with some of the sufferings or some of the things that you're dealing with right now? Well, you know, Peter seems to be saying that there's hope. These prophets who had limited understanding of what was going on, didn't see that fulfilled. They didn't see how the glorification of the Messiah would come. But the encouragement is that God's going to reveal it someday, just like we will see the glorification when Christ comes. So when you're suffering, we're, there's going to be some kind of vindication later for you. Although we see in this case that it wasn't quite clear yet. So since they were writing for us, does that mean that you know, they don't have the same need for salvation like we do. You know, and that's one of the questions people ask all the time was, how are people in the Old Testament saved? You know, even though they said they were writing for us. But remember, they were saved the same way we are saved. They were saved by looking forward for what Christ would do. And we're saved by looking backwards at the cross at what Christ did. And so they anticipated and we reflect you know, nobody has ever gone to heaven or will go to heaven except by Christ's blood. And so go back with me to chapter 3 here. The prophets we see saw his suffering. And we know no one ever suffered like Christ. And uh, in verse, verse 18, it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. The Greek word for died here is a word that, that means a suffering um, that leads on to death. And so it's, there's agony and there's suffering that leads on to death. It, it, um, it, it's, a, it's a brutal kind of suffering that leads to death. But let's look at how he suffered. Consider this, for example. Picture yourself as a teenage boy, 12 or so, and you, um, you knew that at age 33 you would die. How would you feel? I believe Christ lived under the shadow of the cross from maybe about 12 or so, that he knew why he came. He knew the scriptures. He knew what was predicted. And he knew who he was. And he knew about what was to come. And he knew what he was on earth for. 
but he went forward with it. It also says that he died um, for our sins once and for all. He died for sins, and he died once for all. Why did Peter bring this up? What does it mean to die for our sins? Matthew 27, 11 through 14 says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was amazed. And this is what Isaiah predicted here. He predicted that Christ would never say anything in defense of his own innocence. Because 1 Peter 3.17, what does it say? For it is better if God should will it so that you would suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Christ kept his mouth shut knowing that he would suffer for what is right. Just like Peter is encouraging us to do. In his word. So he was sentenced to death. And Matthew 27, 26 tells us then he released Barabbas to them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed them over to be crucified. And so sometimes we read that verse just so casually. And, you know, whether it's Easter time or whatever time we read that, and we say he was beaten and scourged and crucified, and we don't think about it too much. And it says, you know, that he was beaten and scourged. And sometimes we watch a movie or we see something and we see him a little bit bloody and there's some red drops coming down his forehead and stuff like that. But we don't realize how brutal it really was. Because when somebody was scourged, they were stripped naked and, and, and they were tied to a pole. And there are two men that would have this 18-inch this stick called a flagellum with these leather straps on it. And then the end of the leather straps would be bone or glass, sharp bone or glass, and one would start on the front and one would start on the back, and they would start at the person's neck, and they would whip, and these guys were so good, they could strip a person's skin off without tearing the inside out. It was a brutal, brutal type of beating. And then, when they were done, they mocked him. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-seven says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And it tells us some of the things they would do. They would call, they play a game called the game of the kings. And this is what Jesus experienced for our sins. This is stuff that we deserved in the experience. And it was a horrible, horrible death. Nowadays, we wear crosses around our neck and we will have crosses in our building and we'll have it all over to remind us of what Christ did. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we use that to show that we identify with Christ, but in the first century Christians, they wouldn't do that because these are people who would watch these crucifixions happen, and for them, it was unthinkable to do that. It would be kind of like if we were walking around and we had this little model of an electric chair hanging around our neck or, or a hangman's noose or something like that. That's what it would feel like to them. They were terrified of it. But then we see the ultimate sacrifice. Matthew 27, 50 tells us, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He gave his life for many. He gave his life for us. But we know he rose again. He did this for us. So when we think about the fact that he did this for us, how could we be apathetic about serving God when he did this for us? How could anyone blow off the Lord's day when we feel a little tired 
when Christ did all that for us and he died for our sins, how could we like not read God's word to get to know him? How can we not want a fellowship with other believers? How can we be so nonchalant about just serving him when we think about what he did? Romans 12 verse 1 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the only reasonable thing that we could do is to give our all to God. After all, he gave his all for us. And so Christ dying on the cross wasn't only a great suffering for us. We'll see that it was substitutionary. And because it was substitutionary, and it was going to be that only a sinless person could do that. And we know no man sinless, only God sinless. So it had to be God. Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. This is what shows that Christ was sinless because it says he was just. And he died for us who are sin, sinful. We are, we are the unjust. The Bible says he knew no sin, so he died in our place as a substitute. Christ also died for sins once for all. And notice it says that he died for sins. You know, it wasn't his sins, but our sins, because he's just. And it wasn't just some people's sins, for everybody's sins, for the whole world. And also, this wasn't an act of murder. You know, this was a sacrifice that was in the predetermined plan of God. Listen to John ten fourteen. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down in my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So it's an act of murder. He gave his life, and he gave it for us. It was substitutionary, the just for the unjust. He's just, we're unjust. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood of, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so it's no coincidence that Peter speaks of Jesus as a lamb. Remember in Exodus when, when God told Moses that the plague would come? And that they needed to, that every firstborn would be, would be killed unless blood was applied to the doorposts. And so when the death angel came, he passed over the people in the house that had the blood on the doorposts. And so Christ, our Lord, is our Passover lamb. If his blood's applied to our heart, then when, when death comes and when we, we're by, we bypass hell, we, we bypass death in hell, we will go to heaven for eternal life. And so we think about this even going forward a little bit, that in, in Bethlehem, just a few miles from Jerusalem, there was a town, that was a town where they raised these Passover lambs. And going through, they would raise these lambs and they would bring them into the city and, and they would bring them in on what we call Palm Sunday, but um, then they didn't call it that, but they would bring them in to the city at that time. And you would have millions of people coming into Jerusalem for Passover around that time. And so they would come in and they would, all these lambs would be sacrificed and it would be for atonement for their sins. And so we see God's perfect timing even in when Christ would come into Jerusalem. 
He came in at the perfect time. He came in um, on, on Palm Sunday. Now, we call it Palm Sunday for, for other reasons, but this is when Christ, the Lamb of God, came in to make atonement for our sins. So we see God's perfect timing in this, and yet so many people missed it. They missed seeing the significance of it. And so they would bring these lambs in um, into Jerusalem, these, these unblemished lambs on what we would call Good Friday, and they would take these lambs and they would slit their throats and they would spill the blood and it would be as a sacrifice for their sins. And they always did this at 3 o'clock. So Christ came in on Good Friday and the Bible tells us that around 3 o'clock is he died and he shed his blood for us. Now, this isn't a coincidence. These are things that God planned so that people could see the significance, and so many people missed it. And so he died as an atonement for our sins, for Christ also died for sins once for all. That's what once for all means when he said he died for our sins once for all. No more lambs had to be sacrificed. They didn't need to go through this ritual every year by bringing all these Passover lambs into Jerusalem anymore. He was the perfect lamb of God. No more lambs needed to be sacrificed. There was nothing else that needed to be done, be done for salvation. No works, no sacrifice, nothing that needed to be done. And God gives us a wonderful illustration of substitution in his word. Remember Barabbas? Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 Look at verse 15. It says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So here's Barabbas we have, and we're, we're introduced to him. And by the way, he's mentioned in all four Gospels. And, and the beauty of the Gospels is that when you, you can read them together, and you put them together, and you'll get a full picture of, of, of a person or, or of a story. And so we discover from John 18 that Barabbas was a robber. We discover from Luke 23 that he was a rebel. And from Mark 15 that he was a murderer. And it was for these crimes that he was sentenced to die. And he was going to be crucified for these crimes that he had committed. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 27. But the governor said to them, Which of the two, of, two do you want me to release to you? <clears throat> and they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with, uh, with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. Now in Israel, there's a pavement there, and, and told if you go there, you could still see it, where Pilate handed down his judgment. And it's at that pavement that he gave the orders to crucify the Lord, and not too far away in, in what is believed to be the fortress of Antonia, was a prisoner prison where Barabbas was believed to have been in. Now he, 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 my guess is, and you can imagine this, that here's Barabbas and he can't hear the words of Pilate, but he could hear the words of the crowd yelling, Barabbas, crucify him. Barabbas, crucify him. And that's all he could hear. Well, what's happening in reality? You know, there's Pilate. He's saying to the crowd, what, who do you want me to release? And they yell, Barabbas. And he says, what do you want me to do with this one? And they say, crucify him. And he would, he would keep saying that. But all Barabbas could hear is, Barabbas, crucify him. 
Barabbas, crucify him. Now, we see this thief and this murderer and this rebel in Barabbas. He was being released in place of somebody who was innocent. Now, imagine a short time later, and the guard comes down and he says, Barabbas, it's time to go, and he's opening up the cell. And you've probably seen those shows, those death row shows, and when somebody's on death row and they're going, with few exceptions, it's a tough time, and you know you're going to face your maker. And they, they sometimes go kicking and screaming. It's a difficult time. And so you could imagine Barabbas there begging for his life, and he says, no, just give me one more chance. Don't kill me. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And in a technical sense, Barabbas sinned against the law of the land, and he deserved death for his crimes. But the the guard says, come on, you're not going to die today. You're being released. You're the luckiest man alive. The crowd asked for you to be released. You're free to go. And as they walk outside, they go up and they look, and they say, see Golgatha over there? Do you see those three crosses? Do you see the one in the middle? That was for you, Barabbas. We cut that cross beam for you this morning. You are going to be crucified on it. You see those two thieves on either side? You are going to be crucified with them. Now, we don't know who these thieves are. Maybe they were cronies of Barabbas, and maybe they were involved in this kind of stuff that he was in. But we don't know that. But either way, there were going to be three thieves that were going to die that day. And the guard says, you see that man in the middle in agony and blood? Barabbas, he's dying for you. He's dying in your place. He took your cross, Barabbas. I'm sure Barabbas didn't know Romans 6.23, but it applied to him that day. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Maybe he got saved that day. I have no idea, but I could guess that he did. But that's the just for the unjust. The substitutionary death, one doing for another that the other couldn't do for themselves. What a picture of the grace of Christ. Now, you may be saying then, that's a nice feel-good story of imagination, Pastor. You know, I know I can see how this applies to Barabbas. That was for him and that was for his time. After all, Barabbas was a thief, a rebel, and a murderer. I'm none of those things. I'm not a thief. But if you enjoy the things that God's given you, the air, the sunshine, the blessings, and you either haven't given your life to him or you haven't been serving him, then you're a thief. All right, you say, maybe. But I'm not a murderer. I've never killed anyone. But you remember the Ten Commandments? We said, thou shall not kill. What did Christ say when he came to clarify that? He said, if you hate your brother, then you're a murderer. Okay. And you say... I'm not a rebel then. But if Christ has never become the Lord of your life, either through salvation or either through service, and he's been coming after you, then you're a rebel. Maybe he's come for you for salvation. You've rejected him so far. Maybe he's come for you for service, and you've rejected him so far. See, Christ's death wasn't just for Barabbas. It was for all of us. I was looking at this picture again this morning, but there's a picture that is so greatly illustrated by Rembrandt, and you could do a Google search for it, and you could see this. Um, And there's a soldier there hammering in the nails on Christ. 
And as you start looking and you look, and if you know what Rembrandt looks like from some of his pictures, you look and you see the face of the soldier, his Rembrandt. You see, in that, he understood the truth. He knew that we were there when they crucified the Lord, that he did it for us. It was for our sins that he died, the just for the unjust. You know, he was our perfect substitute that day. You know, when, when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We deserve to die in that way. But he took our place. And see, the cross was sufficient. It was sufficient once and for all, like he says here in the verse. And it was sufficient for all people, the just for the unjust. And it was sufficient to bring us to God. Look back at First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. This tells us why he died for us. John 14, verse 6 says, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We want to get to heaven. We have to go through Christ. And then verse 18 here tells us, that this is what he died for, that he might bring us to God. He, the just died for the unjust. So apart from Christ, we can't go to God. That word bring there that we see in that verse is the word prosago. It's used in biblical times of somebody who would bring somebody else to deity, if you will, or not deity, to, a, a, to sovereignty, to a king, if you will, maybe into his presence. And so when we think about it, if we want to go see the president of the United States or even the governor or the mayor even, we could go on a very basic level. We need somebody with access to be able to bring us in. We can't just walk in. We need that access. And so we need that clearance. And so in the same way, Jesus is that one that brings us into the presence of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Folks, unless you have a bringer, you're not even going to go in to see the mayor or the governor or the president unless you have a bringer. But if you've been to the White House, you've seen how fortified it is, and you see the snipers on top of the, the roof and all over that are ready to shoot you if you try and jump over. But it will be a billion, quadrillion times more easy to jump in over that fence and get into the Oval Office than it will be for you to get into heaven without Christ. It's impossible. The only way is through Christ. Your salvation given in no one else but in Jesus. He brings us. And so the focus here is on Christ. We would have no salvation without his death. We would have no salvation without his resurrection. So what's the gospel? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So we have to, be, we have to do this with Christ. So the question is, what are you doing with Christ? Here he is. He's died, the just for the unjust. Are you rejecting him? Or have you accepted him? You know, he came, he came as our substitute. Don't walk out of these doors this morning without making sure that your life is right with Christ. Let's pray. I'll ask that every head be bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around this morning. I'm wondering if this morning you could say, I know I have received Christ, I know I'm saved. I have publicly confessed him. I've had believers baptism and I and I'm now living in fellowship of a New Testament Bible believing church.
you could say that. Would you raise your hand this morning? Amen. Thank you. For those of you who couldn't raise your hand, perhaps you've never been saved. Maybe you're not sure if Christ came today that you would go to heaven. You're not sure about that. Perhaps you've never had believer's baptism. Or you're not a member of a New Testament church, and you know that there's a decision that you need to make. Maybe the decision is about believer's baptism by immersion. That's how we do that here. Maybe it's about church membership. Maybe it's about salvation. It's the biggest need that we have. Would you make that decision public today? Would you step out from where you are and you can meet me down front and I'll pray with you? Whatever it is, I want to encourage you in your decision. Will you do that today? Step out from where you are. Maybe it's some need that you have for prayer. Maybe it's salvation. Maybe some commitment you need to make. You do that. Don't leave these doors without making your life right with God this morning. Father, we pray for those who need to make a commitment to you or maybe have already done so in their hearts. Lord, I just pray for them. Lord, whatever that commitment is, I pray, Lord, that you would just help them to be able to make that public. I pray for anyone who here who is not saved, who does not know you as Lord and Savior, who has not put their faith and trust in you. I pray, Lord, that even at this moment you would speak to their hearts to realize that Christ came and died for our sins, for my sins, for their sins. We were unjust, and he is just. Shed his sinless blood for us. Lord, help us not to trample on the blood of Christ and to keep rejecting his pull towards us. So, Lord, I pray you work in everybody's hearts. In Christ's name.